0: And welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America, episode 80. Well, uh, this is somewhat related. This has to do with a lot of important developments, I feel, for the Native American tribes of America, um, the original inhabitants. And it also kind of goes with politics a little bit. How do I sum up super fast? Concerned because other ethnicities other than Native Americans, meaning non natives in America, are considering opening up their own casinos. And if that is allowed to happen, which might very well happen because those ethnicities would be American citizens and therefore voters, then of course politicians respond to voters. Um, Sovereign tribal nations are not voters. So politically, that would be in favor of the competition to come. So my concern is I, I believe we should preserve the... Revenue streams of the tribes through tribal gaming. However, it it only makes sense that if there's going to be other competition factors and other ethnicity groups in America that are going to start to emerge, which I believe is going to happen, then the revenue streams of the Native American tribes are going to what? Lesson. So, enter in the idea of the Native Americans branching out, I know, Taking a step, doing what Hawaii has been doing forever, tourism, the Hawaiian tribes, doing what um, the Blackfoot tribe is doing um, in Montana, which the Blackfoot tribe has opened its reservation to non-natives, not all of it, but part of it, for tourism and cultural tourism, the teepees, staying the night learning about the culture, workshops, there's a dedicated Blackfoot museum, and um, expanding tourism that way. Now, I don't know if that's attached to a casino for Blackfoot, but it should be. And if it isn't, um, it would make more money if it was attached to a casino, because then you could have American families come in, get the culture, get the uh, cultural immersion experiences, interact, and such, I'm talking everything from arrowhead making, to basket weaving, to jewelry making, to storytelling, to you know smudge making, to knowing how to smudge, to everything you can think of that is related to the particular aspects of said given tribe attached to a casino because at night, maybe the parents wanna gamble. So double-double revenue streams for the tribes. That kind of model is what I'm saying. I think that needs to happen sooner rather than later, as in immediately. And the Blackfoot tribe, obviously, is a visionary tribe who's already on top of it and has already been doing this. And I'm considering going to Montana. I've never been. And visiting this place and checking it out reporting back. Because the Blackfoot tribe's always been on my mind and i haven't known why and since little house in the prairie days the show where the ingalls encounter a blackfoot tribe that speaks french and because of the french traders of the early immigrants and they're mysterious and kind of interesting and that they are already on top of this idea to me says that they're visionaries and they're gifted and i kind of want to check out that tribe and stay the night in the teepee over there. And, you know, pay for it. And I think a lot of other people would too. On many different tribes, That's what I'm saying. But ideally, you know, the casinos have the money so they can create what? The campgrounds, the amenities, everything on tribal land, everything under tribal control, and white people, and Hispanics, and blacks, and others, and Asians, and all non-natives come in and pay to experience and interact not with every single secret detail but with a segment of what the tribes would be willing to welcome in and share in terms of sharing culture what they would feel comfortable with and that's all left to tribal control all under tribal control all on tribal land so there's no appropriation whatsoever isn't that nice well that vision has been on my heart for days And nice to see the Blackfoot has already done it. There's a couple other tribes, I guess, that have also done it, which I'm going to research. But most tribes have not done this. And that's why I'm like, do it now, do it now, do it now. Because the competition for casinos is going to be coming. And the politicians are going to go for, what, American citizens. So you figure out what that's going to mean. Reduced revenue. Okay. But exciting news in Alaska. Sarah Palin. You know, remember her? I can see Russia from my front door. <laughs> she is out, seas. No more Republican Sarah Palin. Democrat Mary Peltola defeats Sarah Palin in a special election for Alaska's House seat. This is ABC News yesterday. Mary Peltola. Was yesterday, which is today. Democrat Perry Mary Pitola, sorry, Peltola is projected to win the Alaska special general election for the state's sole House seat, ABC News reports. Peltola defeated two Republicans, former Republican Alaska Governor Sarah Palin and Nick Begich, and will be the first Democrat to represent the state in House in nearly half a century, succeeding Representative Don Young, who died in March. Peltola will also be the first Alaskan native. Native American, to represent the state in Congress. Significant. Begich has been knocked out under the rank choice rules. Peltola defeated Palin about 51% to 49 What's most important is that I'm Alaskan being sent to represent all Alaskans. Yes, being Alaskan Native is part of my ethnicity, but I'm much more than my ethnicity, Peltola said following the announcement of the results, according to Anchorage Daily News. She looks a blend of white and Native American. The election, which was called on Wednesday some two weeks after voting ended, was historic for more technical reason. It was the first Alaska race that used ranked choice ballots. The process, which advocates said, would encourage more consensus building, but Palin criticized as convoluted. Work like this. If a candidate in the election initially won more than 50% of the first choice voters, they would have won the race outright. That didn't happen. Special race on August 17th. Paltola initially ended up with forty percent. Then the candidate with the least amount of first place votes, Bakich, was eliminated and candidates' voters had then had their ballots redistributed to the second choice under one candidate got fifty at least fifty percent. Palgola is an indigenous Yupik Alaskan. Yupik Y U P IK and former member of the Alaska House of Representatives. As a state lawmaker, she chaired the bipartisan Bush Caucus of Rural Politicians. In addition, she served the Kuskokwim River Intertribal Fish Commission before leaving for her congressional campaign. On the trail, she prioritized climate change, responsible resource development, infrastructure for airports, ferries, highways, energy grids. Pelotolo will only serve as the remainder of Young's term, which ends... In January oh, what she's on the ballot again I will vote for her again along with Palin and bigot to try to win a full two-year term uh, okay a statement Wednesday, Palin repeated her criticism of ranked choice voting, saying it was sold as a way to make elections better, reflect the will of the people, but that has opposite effect. She said though we're disappointed in this outcome, Alaskans know I'm the last one who ever retreat. Said I'm going to reload with optimism and Alaskans learn from the voting system mistake and correct at the next election. Let's work harder to send America first conservative to Washington in November. No. Let's send Pelt this one man again. No, Palin, you're over. Peltola, please. Why is it significant to what I just said earlier? Well, she can represent in Congress this idea, too, of helping to um, support the tribes with revenue streams. Now, what does this ultimately mean for American citizen voters? Well, it's an alternative vacation plan for families, Right to teach their kids about Native ways on Native land under Native control for money um, to keep the Natives going. And I think she could be in a position of influence to help with the Tribal Gaming Commission of the nation of America to, you know, really make this happen in a broader sense, so that when there is competitive competition for a casino, there's only so many people that want to gamble for casinos that the tribes are not going to suffer too many losses in their revenue. So that's what I would hope in addition to what she was proposing. I don't think Sarah Palin is helpful in that way. Good for Alaska to turn down so good. Okay. Okay. There's more Native American news. I'm skimming really quickly. Yeah, so this was helpful. This is another um, example of returning of the sacred sites, returning the sacred objects, this idea of the indigenous tribes. Indian Country Today magazine, Colby, kicking woman, yesterday, indigenous ancestors found on North Dakota College campus. The University of North Dakota admitted it had more than 250 boxes of ancestral remains um, and sacred items and the process of repatriating these items to the indigenous homes. On Wednesday, a school leader publicly apologized. See, this is helpful. The um, University of North Dakota in Grand Forks has begun the process of repatriating sacred objects and ancestral remains that belong to indigenous communities that were found weeks ago on school campus. As News Conference Wednesday School President Andrew Armacost said in November 2021, University formed a UND Repatriation Committee to develop policies on the process of returning native artifacts to tribal lands. In late February early March, the committee found a significant number of artifacts on campus including ancestral remains. Armacost noted that the records of what is in possession of the university is incomplete, but there are more than 250 boxes of artifacts. The number of ancestors can be measured in the dozens. Wednesday's statement and news conference were the first public statement issued since the university has been in touch with 13 tribes. A number. He says we'll continue to grow, to gain their advice and counsel, to make sure the process is done correctly and completed. First, I sincerely express my apologies and heartfelt regrets that the UND has not already repatriated these ancestors and sacred objects as they should have been years ago, Armacost said in a statement. Second, I pledge my administration's full support and commitment to the tribal nations impacted by this mistake. Our primary goal now is to work diligently until all ancestors and sacred objects are returned home, regardless of how long it takes. On March 3rd, the first ancestor was discovered by members of the committee. Fighting back tears, Land Lions, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, said, It is a day and moment you'll never forget. Lions is a committee member. Oh, Interesting. I don't know, I'm just pausing because I don't, well, I don't know if I'll talk about that right now. Never mind. (laughs) Okay, in that moment my heart sunk into my stomach, she said. It was that moment that I knew we were an institution that didn't do the right thing. After sharing the news... With other committee members, many felt the same feelings of betrayal, anger, sadness, frustration, and exhaustion. She said, some eight hundred and seventy thousand Native American artifacts should that should be returned to tribes under federal law are still in the possession of colleges, museums, and other institutions across the country, according to the, uh, the Associated Press revenue of data mentioned by the National Park Service. I'm going to deviate here. Well, why do you think that is? Hello, money money. So, you know, this is what I'm saying. We need to have these objects returned to the Native American tribes, and they can have their own museums that we pay to go on tribal land to visit. See how that works? See how that is? We flipped that just now. That's the goal and the vision. See? So why do you think the colleges and museums sold? I'm sure they get a lot of money for keeping them, preserving them, having a budget, charging money for people to come see it. And all of this should be done on tribal land, for non-natives to pay to visit to see to learn see so yeah it's this is part of the reversal uh as the search continued to other areas and more remains were found each new discovery felt like a deeper and deeper cut into her hearts Lyons says in 1990 congress i don't know why she's surprised though i mean are you really that surprised Lyons? i that's kind of ignorant is it i mean i'm not surprised In 1990, Congress passed the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act, commonly known as NAGPRA. It's a federal law enacted to protect and provide repatriation of human remains, funerary objects, aka Indian burial grounds, sacred objects, and objects of cultural patrimony. According to the National Park Service website, any federal agencies and museums, universities, state agencies, local government, any institution that receives federal funds must comply with NAGPRA. Along with working with tribes, the university has also been working with government agencies to ensure the law is being followed correctly. Taking questions in the media, Armacost was asked about a timeline, and event, so why it took so much time it needed to make inf- informational available to the public, so whereas why the news conference wasn't live-streamed. As after the discovery that remains, he said the university immediately began working with tribal representatives in the region and following their lead on what was an important priority. The fact that it took us six months to get here, we went as fast as humanly possible, speaking with as many people as we could get to the point, Armacus said. So there's no interest or intent on hiding on this. Oh, I don't know about that. We're as public as possible. I don't know about that either. (laughs) He added that the recording will be posted on the university website for all to watch. Armacost recognizes the process of repatriating the objects and remains is going to take a lot of hard work and possibly several years. However, he and the university remain committed to following through its completion. He also added in a statement that many people and communities will be affected by the news. While I can't take away their pain, I can apologize on behalf of UND for our mistakes, Armacost said in a statement. The tribal communities have my assurance that as university we're strongly committed to repatriation. Through the process has been a priority of the committees to be transparent as well as documenting." recorded their efforts so that they might be a model for other universities and museums in the future. Doug McDonald Ogala Lakota is a psychology professor at university and is on the committee as well. He said they don't want other university organizations to be blindsided as they were. We don't want other universities or other organizations to have to do what we've had to do, which is essentially scramble from scratch, McDonald said. What made it clear during the news conference is how difficult this has been for all involved. North Dakota Indian Affairs Commission Executive Director Nathan Davis, Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians, said everything he's been taught and learned in life he's never been taught to put relatives back in the ground. It violates who we are. It violates our culture, Davis said. So when we say this hurts, it's because it touches our soul. It touches our spirit. Because in our ways, this is not supposed to happen. Our loved ones are supposed to rest. The university is not facing criminal or civil penalties under NAGPRA. and Armacost said this was not a dissuading factor. This is too important. We owe it to the tribes to make sure we bring their ancestors home, and I think that's an important point, Armacost said. So even though I speculate that in any pen there isn't any penalty, that is absolutely not the reason we came forward. We'd have to come forward anyway. The university has launched a repatriation webpage that contains a statement from Armacost. Ancestors are frequently answers Sorry, answers to frequently asked questions, and links for mental health support Those affected by announcement. The committee held discussions of indigenous students on campus and Lyons and said many felt the same anger and devastation from committee felt. They can feel the way that's, and that's okay. We've all felt that way, Lyons said. If we anticipate certain actions, maybe that's their right. They have every right to do what they need to do with their emotions. She added it's, not, it's that she'd be more worried if students didn't feel anything. I mean, they still care. They care about our people. They care about our ancestors. They care about each other. That's important, she said. It's still early in the process, and McDonald said there's plenty to be done. Pray for our continued healing because there's a lot of work to do to bring about the ancestors home. I mean, you know, whatever gets it done at this point. Let's read. Oh, darn, it, it is Blackfeet. I've been saying Blackfoot. <laughs> I couldn't remember if it was foot or feet. Yay! I'm bad with names, what can I say? Feet. (laughs) Okay, the travel. Montana's Blackfeet Indian Reservation is tourist friendly and educational. This is what I think is a great model for the rest of the tribes. Aaron Spray, now that I got the tribe name right, Blackfeet, Blackfeet. The Blackfeet Nation, the large Montana reservation open to visitors. What to See and Do, Blackfeet Nation, Museum of the Plains Indians, Blackfeet Culture Camp. No one can really understand or appreciate the history of the lands that are now United States and Canada without understanding the histories and traditions of Native Americans. Today there are many reservations across the United States and Canada. The largest one is the Navajo Nation. I thought it was the Cherokee Nation. Come on. Okay. Maybe the square footage of, or the acreage, perhaps, home to some of the most iconic landscapes of the Southwest. Many of the Indian reservations are not really open for tourism, but few are. The Blackfeet Nation in Montana, just next to Glacier Park National Park, is one that's tourist-friendly. It's a reservation that comes combines history, culture, eye-watering landscapes into one experience. It's a great place to learn the tale of American history from the point of view often forgotten. Heavens. Come on. The Blackfeet Nation largest okay. Next time one is planning to go to the Glacier National Park, take a side trip to the Blackfeet Nation. Officially called the Blackfeet Tribe, the Blackfeet Indian Reservation of Montana. Nation. A fish okay. Most of the tribal members belong to the Pegan Blackfeet band. P I E G A N band of the larger Blackfoot. Okay, there is a Blackfoot. <laughs> oh my gosh. Feet foot. This is complicated. Okay, Blackfoot Black <laughs> belong to the Pegan Blackfeet band of the larger Blackfoot Confederacy. The Confederacy extends into Canada. Got it. Okay. It's Blackfeet, but then "foot" is part of the name. The reservation is large, spending three thousand, span spend, spending, Spanding. expanding three thousand square miles. While it may not look large in the context of Montana, it's much larger than the state of Delaware. It's located along the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains and borders Glacier National Park in the west and Canada to the north. According to Governor's Office of Indian Affairs, the name is thought to have come from the characteristic black color of the moccasins, painted or darkened with ashes. The tribe actually calls themselves um, Ni Itsi tape, tape, meaning the real people. What to see and do there? Visitors can enjoy Blackfeet Nation both summer and winter. Active Activities include hiking, camping, boating. Oh, it might be over then. What about fall and spring? Shoo. Sure. Activities include hiking, camping, boating. I guess I have to wait till next summer. Fishing, hunting, and more, although tribal permits may be required. This is amazing. This is great. They are on top of it. Plan wants visits around the annual North American Indian Day celebration to gain a new glimpse of Native culture. It's held in Browning, the headquarters of the reservation, on the second weekend of July. Another time to come is Heart Butte Indian Days on the second weekend of August. What's going on in September? Nothing? <laughs> the Museum of the Plain Indians. It's one of the main attractions of the reservation, one of the best to learn about the history of the Native Americans in Great Plains. The museum is located in tribal headquarters of Browning. It was founded in 1941 focuses on art, historical clothing, horse gear, weapons, other artifacts of the North, northern tribal plains people. Their exhibit their exhibits rotate seasonally. The museum represents more than just Blackfeet. It represents Sioux, Northern Cheyenne, Crow, Arapaho, Shoshone, Assiniboine, uh Flathead, Cree, Chippewa, and Nez Perce the nez pierce i'm sorry the good and i'm glad they choose uh to have admission fees Ugh. summer hours darn it i think i missed it <laughs> uh, yi yi. i have to wait Another of the attractions at the Reservation of Blackfeet Culture Camp it's tucked in breathtaking foothills of not Rocky, Mar- Rocky Mountains near Browning. Visitors should also visit their Native American art gallery. See its displays of contemporary traditional Blackfeet fine art. Bring Blackfoot Indian history alive with their Blackfeet history tour. On tour, visitors visit Buffalo jump sites, powwows, teepee rings, and the Museum of Plains Indians. Oh, there we go. Half day, $125 per person. Now we're talking for horseback riding. Uh, Other activities offered are horseback riding, hiking, fishing, listening to stories from Native Americans. They're just amazing. They have it all down. Thank you for manifesting my vision. I appreciate you, Blackfeet tribes. You're awesome. Uh, And more. Stay in a traditional teepee. The Blackfeet Culture Camp is well a camp. They have a number of teepees and other accommodations. to stay at. See their price list for more information about staying. Awesome, like it. Well, I just maybe missed the uh, time frame as of now, but I can catch up. I'm gonna resend that to myself, to Calendar. So that is all I have right now on Native American news. I'm going to the powwow in Napa this Saturday and Sunday. If you want to go to Napa, California, the powwow is there. It's going to be my first powwow. Well, I've been to the sunrise ceremony so many times in Alcatraz, but this is a powwow, which is featuring a lot of dancing. It'll be great. Oh, so many things. There's like a whole episode I could do just on San Francisco News alone, which I probably should do. I guess let's stick with Native American news. This is a little bit of a bad part. SF Gate barrier residents outraged by controversial ugly development that would disturb Native American burial sites. Arinda Beinman Friday. Proposed sand and gravel mine at Sargent Ranch, a sprawling 6,200-acre plot of land in Santa Clara County, is causing a firestorm in the South Bay after the release of the project's draft environmental impact report revealed it could significantly damage sacred Native American burial sites and historic artifacts. In a contentious public meeting on August 25th, nearly 100 people protested the mine, which would extract mineral for 30 years on a 300-acre site, saying it would erase and destroy indigenous history. The project site, which has been dubbed a magnet for real estate developers, a holy grail to nature conservationists, and most sacred ground to a local Native American tribe by the Morgan Hill Times has been mired in controversy for years. In 2016, it was reported that the developer Wayne Pierce once envisioned building casinos, golf courses, thousands of suburban homes, on a massive swath of land. The Silicon Valley Business Journal said Pierce was met with intense pushback at his audacious plans never materialized. Now stakeholders are returning with yet another development that's outraged local communities. According to the EIR, driving trucks in the area could construction and building the project's proposed bridges would erode the soil, significantly disturbing burial sites and artifacts this project would cause a substantial adverse change in the significance known in historical and archaeological resources. It said, plus, could rob Ahmad mutsun or Ohlone tribes of land-damaged archaeological sites, reduce habitat, further putting indigenous tradition in jeopardy. Our tribe went through three periods of brutal colonization. Valentine Lopez, Ahma-Mutsun tribal chairman, said during August 25th public meeting, to mine the site would be to permanently destroy it and continue the long, ugly history of the nation and the state of California. A history of attempted genocide, said Teddy Simon, an advocate for racial economic justice program at ACLU in Northern California. Proposing to destroy it is much like proposing to destroy Jerusalem or Mecca, adding Priya Graves. No amount of restoration can rehabilitate the culture and spiritual aspects of this landscape. Kim Keptel uh, continued. It's completely ridiculous that we're even talking about it. We live here because of genocide of indigenous people. Toward the end of the 18th century, Spanish colonizers traveled, traveling through Santa Clara County, encountered flourishing Native communities near a sergeant area, according to ethnographic study and project the Subsequently, the In- Inujamas, the Asoimas, and Mutsun tribes were forced into missions where they endured death, disease, dangerously, unsanitary conditions. By 1800, 275 Mutsun had been enslaved and baptized at the missions. 32 years later, population dwindled from 10,000 to less than 2,000. Ohlone traditions were nearly erased by the European oppressors. Today, document that says Ohlone tribes continue to practice ancient traditions that are relevant to the quarry project there. And still there's historic remnants of the pre-mission life at the northern end of the site. There are still at least six human burials and evidence of tools and ornament production indicating that it was once a sacred ceremonial site for the Olone, near the project entrance animal remains and stone stools and stone tools were also discovered if approved project could damage ancestral trails associated with tribal leaders, deity spirits, ceremonial areas used for healing and harvesting, and sacred live oak trees, among other features of historic, cultural, spiritual value, the document said. Further, the site could also contain ceremonial plants and artifacts that would provide more data on the Ohlone tribe's legacy. We've taken this land by force from indigenous people, and we owe them profound reparations, said Alexandra Wolska. Roma- Dawson agreed. When are we going to show respect to Native American tribal culture? Sergeant Ranch representatives did not respond to SF Gate's request for comment. Of course. Yeah, so I mean, the battle continues. The mindset is still there. The disrespect, the lack of consideration is still there. But there are more people now in white culture, so to speak, that are advocates. That's the change. So um, 6,200 pl- acre plot of land to Sarah Clara County I mean, I would say that the remedy would be working with the tribes to find out what areas of that would be allowed to be developed, and then what percentage of money would go directly to the tribes if they do develop. And what areas are completely off-limits? And that is only a decision that the tribal people can make with the developers so if you're going to develop you should give and be commanded to give a percentage of whatever the profits are that are actually going to be of meaning and value to those tribes of which they agree upon and it's contractual and has to happen and what areas are just absolutely not to be touched and that's to be respected and you know people can build up versus out and I think things can be remedied and can be worked through, but it has to start with a spirit of respect. I'm not necessarily for hard no's, and I'm also not for blind yeses. Like, there does have to be this, you know, back and forth, and what would actually be beneficial for the tribes? What would be meaningful for them? Would it be a museum on their dedicated run by them? owned by them, a plot of land for themselves to what? I don't know. I don't know. What would be negotiating? So negotiators come to solve this problem, please. Based in respect, mutual benefit, right? And compromise. Okay. Yeah, not blatant disregard. How did did blatant disregard work out? Not so great. Okay, so I mean, this still continues, of course. But there is forward motion in the evolution of developers to be conscionable. I mean, we do see this. So, but are there some throwbacks that still don't get it? Of course, of course. So, you know, you have to reach and be patient to reach all of them and demand and also look inwardly and see what would be meaningful for the tribes, for themselves their people. Creativity usually can solve most things. And a willingness and a respect. Oh, so many things. yeah. Okay. I guess that will just, we'll just all things Native American news here. Can anyone own it? This is like the justification I was making for the story earlier. Can anyone own a casino in California? To the point. KTVX Sacramento. Gilbert Gordova. There's a Monday picture of a black lady on the thing. Following a nearly open of Sky River Casino Elk Grove, many community members have made their voices heard about their excitement and opposition to the casino. ABC10 viewers asked, will will other ethnicities have their own casinos in the future? The Sky River Casino in Elk Grove, that's outside of Sacramento, were originally set up to end open to end of October 2022, but in July, the Wilton Rancheria Tribe announced that they were pushing for September date. The casino opened even earlier, in mid-August. ABC 10 News... Show to the point with Alex Bell ran a segment highlighting the casino's early opening. Casey, a viewer of the show, emailed the following question Would you think in the future that other ethnicities of people will have their own casinos? We cannot protect the future, but we can help provide information. We can reach out to Fred, Fred Castano, public information officer for the California Gambling Control Commission, and ask, Why can Native Americans own? Uh, casinos in California? And can anyone non Native American own casinos in the state of California? Castanano says In California, federally recognized Native American tribes own and operate casinos where they can offer class three gaming, which includes slot machines and offering house banked games. House banked games, yeah. Tribes enter into the compact agreements with the state, which are negotiated with the governor's office, and these compacts codify the casino's gaming activities and financial arrangements with the state of California the state and the local government. There are also gaming operations in California that are not owned and operated by tribes. They're known as card rooms. Card rooms cannot offer the types of gaming that tribal casinos can. Card rooms players let the betting betting against each other like games like poker, whereas tribal casinos players can bet against the house in games like blackjack. Castano further highlighted why Native Americans can own and operate casinos by pointing to the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act that was passed by Congress in 1988. According to the National Indian Gaming Commission, tribal gaming as we think of it today dates back to the 1970s when a number of Indian tribes established bingo operations as a means of raising revenue to fund tribal government operations. About two decades later, through the court case California v. casabon Band of Mission Indians, 480 U.S. 202 the US Supreme Court confirmed the inherent authority of tribal governments to establish and regulate gaming operations independent of state regulation provided the state in question prevents some form of gaming this case and the debate over whether tribal governments possess the authority to conduct gaming independently of state regulation led to the passage of the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988 so yeah people are wondering about that they may very well develop that which may very well serve to reduce tribal revenue. Hence, follow the Blackfeet idea, if you will. So that was all in Native American news. Okay, what else do we want to cover here? I guess we'll do environmental topics. First-ever housing development powered, heated, and cooled by geothermal technology. This is a video, so I have to find the closed captions. CNBC. Okay, let's try again. The last few years have brought record numbers of severe climate disasters. That's according to NOAA. It's causing some people to think twice about depending on traditional energy sources now in... Texas, engineers are building the first ever large-scale geothermal network to power residential communities. It's a technology that can help people reduce their energy consumption and save a lot of money. In Austin, here's CNBC's Dana. From above, the Austin area development looks like a lot like any other But by the way, Whisper Valley is the largest geothermal system ever created for residential community, a blueprint for greener living. So if you just travel down below your feet, 30 or 40 feet, it's a constant temperature all year round, 72 to 74 degrees. So we want to access that because it makes the heating and cooling equipment all more efficient. EcoSmart Systems subsidiary development Taurus Investment Holdings pumps water deep underground. Mild temperatures through the water, and these to the pumps are used to distribute the water throughout the entire geo grid. A geo grid that will eventually heat and cool more than 700 sorry 7,000 homes before everyone 300 feet deep are drilled in front of every lot to circulate temperature water to each home. Thurman homes is one of the buildings. The beauty of the system is it uses us as a builder. There's very little that it has to be considered outside a normal building. Practices builders simply connect the water lines to geothermal system while it's powered by electricity. It uses far less traditional HVACs and every home has solar panels. The whole package reduces energy consumption about 80% with the investment of a geothermal. The day you move in it's going to be saving you. Money. Just ask homeowner Jennifer Abamonte. We essentially have no power bills at this point. The cost of a home here is about $10,000. More than a comparable home, but buyers seem willing to pay and add. Features like battery backup, Abamonte did because she said she was nervous about the deadly ice storm just 18 months ago that shut down the state's power grid. But it's really been nice when we've had even minor outages to not have to worry about things that continue to function. And EchoSmart is already working on plans for similar projects in other states. Wolfson said the recently passed inflation reduction law is a massive windfall for geothermal development. On the commercial level, tripling the tax credits for over 10 years. Government backing also gives investors essential certainty that the technology can grow on a much larger scale. See? Getting power from the earth, folks. What else for environment? This is also a housing alternative. K R C R Chico Redding, a celebration years in the making, Redding's first three D printed home ready to be built. Sam Chimenti, yesterday. Construction is about to begin on California's first ever on-site 3D printed home, and it's happening in Redding, California. What began as a recovery solution post-car fire has since turned into the future of affordable home building in the North State. On Wednesday, after three years of diligent work and preparation, it was time to celebrate what's to come. Emergent 3D, in partnership with Access Home and City of Redding and others, have finally brought 3D printing technology to Shasta County. It's been a long road to get here, but we're finally here, and I couldn't be more thrilled, said Matthew Guile, founder of Emergent 3D. Isle was the main visionary behind bringing 3D home building to Reading. To be standing here in Enterprise Park with the br- printer behind us, it's delightful, said, Giles. said. Printing of the walls the first Home in Enterprise Park was supposed to begin on Wednesday, but is often the case the construction industry. Guile's team experienced delays. The training process for using the printer is extensive, and emergent 3D employees are still being trained by the printer's manufacturer on how to properly use the equipment. Nonetheless, the hope is to have printer running and the walls printing within the next few days. In spite of the holdup, Guile and Emergent 3D CEO Don Adjiman had a vision that's ready to be realized. We'll be building a total of six of these homes right here in Reading, Adjiman explained to KRCR's Sam Clementi, as well as at least one down in Paradise because they obviously could use the solution as well. To the first question, Guile responded by listing the unique qualities of a 3D-printed house. It's a concrete home, so the fire-resistant we won't even receive it. I say it's fireproof, but the fire-resistant qualities of it make it beneficial, said Guile. The wall system itself is highly efficient. We're hoping to see a large reduction in the energy cost to cooler heat a home. As for a lot of questions, Adjeman, who owns a construction company, touched on this challenge contractors are facing right now. There just aren't as many kids and younger people coming into the trades, Adjeman said. And so, rather than look at this and perhaps Taking jobs away because we're automating. We look at we're taking a limited resource of qualified help and actually multiplying their efforts. We can use the same crews and just develop more homes because that's really what California needs. Nice. Of course, that's a very simplistic solution, but it's a good start. A lot depends not on the actual product you're doing, but whether it's permitted in your zoning, right? Okay, what else? Okay, another problem with electric cars. Don't like the EVs. California is told not to charge electric cars days after the gas car sales ban. This week, Claudia Radman. yesterday, Californians may need to take measures to conserve energy, including avoiding charging electric vehicles to prevent strain to the state's power grid over the Labor Day weekend. Official says it. week after state regulars voted on a plan to ban the sale of gasoline power cars. The new policy approved by California Air Resources Board require all new cars in California and sold to be free of ge- greenhouse gas emission by 2035 as part of an effort to fight climate change. But with the heat wave forecasting for the coming days, California's grid operator Tuesday warned that excessive heat would stress the energy grid and conservation may be needed over the holiday weekend to avoid power outages. California Independent System Operator said it's issued an order restricting maintenance operations from August 31st to September 6th to ensure that all generators and transmission lines are in service. In news release, California ISO said it expects that it will issue calls for voluntary conservation of electricity through flex alerts over the long weekend. During a flex alert, consumers are urged to reduce energy from 4 to 9 p.m when the system is most stressed, because the demands for electricity remain high and there are less solar energy available, the release said. The top conservation actions are set to thermostats to 78 or higher to reduce air conditioner use. Avoid larger appliances and charge electric vehicles. Don't charge them, in other words, turn off unnecessary lights. Lowering electricity during that time will ease strain on the system, prevent more drastic measures, including rotating power outages. Some on social media pointed out the conflicting messages were being sent to Californians. We recently ruled to ban gas-powered cars. Just put out a warning to avoid charging electric vehicles. Um, Robbie Sturrock, a former Republican Congress candidate in Tennessee. This comes days after California became the first state to ban gas cars by 2035. which is a massive pain in the grid for there. everyone forced to drive only electric cars. Toddlers could run a state more competently than Democrats. <laughs> I don't agree, but I see it that that is funny. (laughs) California's Democrat governor Gavin Newsom hailed the new rule requiring all all car sales to be zero emission vehicles, ZEVs, Um, by 2035 is a groundbreaking effect to tackle the climate crisis. If we can solve the climate crisis if we focus on big, bold steps necessary to cut pollution... This plan's year's targets 35% DEVs by 2026, 68% by 2030, and 100% by 2035. Providing our roadmap, reducing dangerous carbon emissions, and moving away from fossil fuels. That's 915 million oil barrels worth of emissions that won't pollute our communities. Newsom said that $10 billion the state was investing in making the transition would make it easier and cheaper for all Californians to purchase electric cars. Yeah, I'm not a fan of it because we're going to have climate change actually increasing the heat, which, again, is straining the grid, which, again, isn't going to work for electric cars. So what does Marco Rubio have to say about electric cars? I think hydrogen's the answer, honestly, with some electricity, but not that much. Fox News Central, Senator Margaret Rubio reveals the problems with electric cars. One of the critical problems with left-wing policies like you see coming from Democratic Party these days is they don't mesh with common sense and reality in the real world, right? So they have these policies. Now we're going to go do all battery powered solar power. We don't have the infrastructure for that. We're not anywhere near that. All the tax credits in the world are not going to change that. Number two, a lot of the materials that you need to build these batteries and solar panels all come from China. So you're empowering them. He's right. And number three is what I pointed out today, that we don't have the charging stations. And if we do, they're telling people not to charge electric cars. (laughs) Agreed. Agreed on all fronts. So hydrogen, 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 please, not electric cars hydrogen but one thing marco is wrong about is that democrats we can pivot pretty quickly so if something really isn't working we will give it up and try something else okay so we're not adhered but normally we don't have this crazy heat wave right but i think we are going to have more of these crazy heat waves so was this an opportunistic dig from republicans to democrats yes it was are, did they, are they right? Yes, in this heat wave, right? Which isn't every day. But point taken, if we have more hydrogen cars that use less electricity, then it should be better than only emit water vapor. Okay. I have 10 minutes. What else is left? Well, the environment... So much news. Let's talk more about the electric cars. The drive dealership quotes $30,000 to replace battery in a $10,000 Chevrolet Volt. Lewin Day. Chevy Volt owner in Florida was shocked to receive $30,000 quote for a replacement battery from a dealership report's car scoops. The quote in question comes from Roger Dean Chevrolet in Florida and regards a battery replacement for a 2012 Chevy Volt. The cost of the new battery itself comes in at 26853 Further charges include $33 for coolant, 1200 in labor. Added tax and total bill comes to $30,842.15. It's a steep price, particularly with a brand-new Chevrolet Volt with a far larger battery, can be had for a base price at 26595 the enormous figure raised questions on whether the quote was posted online with comments on Reddit and beyond, raising questions as to authenticity. However, the fact-checking website Snopes was able to confirm with the dealership that the quote was indeed legit. I just don't like electric cars. It's a bad plan. This core of the matter the price of the battery itself, posting on Facebook, the dealership noted this is an estimate for 12-year-old vehicle out of warranty and for a battery, which is extremely hard to get due to older technology of a 12-year-old vehicle. The battery is not a source from the GM, according to dealership, but a third-party supplier with the dealer noting that the dealership does not set battery prices. A 2012 Chevy Volt could reasonably be expected to attract a $10,000 offer on a site like CarMax, so it's hard to justify spending three times that on a replacement battery. It's also shocking, given the small 16-point kilowatt capacity the Volt's battery pack. A Tesla Model 3 battery can be had for under 14 grand, and that's four to five times larger. The argument from the dealer, nonetheless, is frustrating one for owners on older hybrids and EVs. The average vehicle on the U.S. road is 12 years, and most of them aren't incurring $30,000 repair bills out of the blue. As EVs grow older, the broader expectation is battery placements will be affordable, if expensive. They certainly shouldn't cost the whole price of a whole new car. Interestingly, Redditors were able to hunt down a refurbished Chevy Volt battery for under 7,000 in online parts catalogs. Notably, though, the part was number did not match the one quoted in the invoice, which is listed as discontinued. Without access to dealer part catalogs, it's difficult to know why part number quoted is so expensive. However, rare and discontinued parts are often more expensive in the run-of-the-mill items. However, it suggests that the owner could likely get a far cheaper battery replacement if they're happy to go with refurbished battery for the 2012 Chevy Bolt. As with the rare ICE-powered cars... Um, obscure EVs could be killed off as it becomes a difficult to source parts to keep them on the road. For example, while there's plenty of aftermarket support for cars like Nissan Leaf and Tesla Model S you're going to find it far harder to source a battery for something like a Mitsubishi IM-IEV. In any case, for now, battery replacements remain prohibitively expensive. The hope is that as that EVs go mainstream, those prices come down. I just, let's just pass on electric cars. Pass, let's do hydrogen cars. If we can do hydrogen buses and hydrogen trains, like they did in Germany, we can do a hydrogen car folks. Come on, let's get with the program. Okay. More environment. Flee Mississippi as fast as practical. 24-7 Wall Street, Douglas McIntyre Monday. Every few months, scientists issue a report on parts of the world that are just no longer habitable. Usually areas that will suffer from extreme temperature, drought. U.S. regions have started to appear on these lists. The reason often is flooding, although uh, drought is a hallmark of future troubled parts of the southwest, including Nevada, California. Floods have already killed a number of people this year. The most recent have been in the floods in Tennessee and Kentucky. The incidents have caused hundreds of millions of dollars and taken lives. Dangerous floods now are expected parts of Mississippi. The mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, recently told residents of part of the city to get out now, according to CNN. The city faced a similar problem in February 2020, as it often is the case. Areas that are dangerous because of extreme weather go through same catastrophe over and over. Other examples are wildfires portion of the Atlantic Coast, Gulf of Mexico that are hit by hurricanes. Climate scientists see no reason to believe the problems in these deeply troubled areas will ever improve. That means residents will never get the relief from these dangerous and unpredictable situations. Water levels have risen steadily along some American coasts and will never drop again. Wildfire Wildfire areas will suffer from drought and never go away. Mississippi has become a climate hotspot, particularly along the Pearl River. The last flood and current one shows the area will be periodically waterlogged. If prevailing wisdom about climate change is true, these incidents will become worse and be happen more frequently. If climate change will not change for the better, the largest challenge is where people in these dangerous areas will move. Many man-made solutions to climate catastrophes could push the trouble into the future, but there is little evidence this will solve problems permanently. It's time to leave parts in Mississippi, but leave it for where? A financial advice. Okay, that's not that's an ad for where? For anywhere else. There's so many places. Come on, come on, for where? For anywhere. Goodness, <laughs> what a silly question. Okay, what about? the single most misleading statistic in renewable energy. How about that? the streets. Uh, Max Chatsko. Only a fraction of total energy consumption comes from renewables, kind of. No energy source is perfect. Fewer is devices as renewables. Arguments have focused on high cost, low reliability, and ability to build a grid base of renewable energy. Easy to disprove these arguments with real-world data. For example, wind and solar offer the lowest cost of electricity on average in the U.S. Meanwhile, eight different states lean on wind power for 20% of their electricity. Texas generates more electricity from wind power alone than 39 states generate total, including solar, and the Lone Star State generates more electricity from renewables than 42 states generate from all sources combined. I did not know that. Imperfect, Arguments that gloss over nuance or reality will continue so long as renewable energy remains a political football. But the most misleading argument is one being increasingly used to dismiss zero-carbon energy altogether. Renewable energy contributes only 12% of all energy consumed in the U.S. Look at Just look at wind and solar, and the number shrivel, shrivels to 4.7. Why is there so much focus on renewable? If it makes such a paltry contribution to the total energy use, let's dig in. The five energy sectors explained. It's true. Wind and solar combines just 4.7 of total energy consumption in the U.S. 2021. However, energy and electricity are not the same thing in this context. Total energy consumption spans electricity, the power sector, liquid fuels, the transportation sector, heat across industrial, commercial, residential sectors. Winds and solar farms generate electricity and contribute to the power sector. Therefore, it's misleading to gauge market share by viability by factoring in transportation and heating too. Indeed, the U.S. leaning on renewable energy for 25.3% of total electricity generated in the first six months of 2022, a record of 16.5% electricity generated with source from wind and solar alone in that span. That's not to say renewable energy will never grab majority share of total energy consumption. Rather, the energy transition may look different in each sector. Power, electric. Utilities and power generators must plan grid changes years in advance to ensure stability. Almost all new capacity being added for the next decade compromises wind and solar, which almost all old capacity retired compromises fossil fuels. It all comes down to economics. Wind and solar farms don't require ongoing fuel expenses, which results in low cost energy output for the life of the asset. Meanwhile, older coal fired and gas fired facilities have fuel expenses at higher maintenance costs. Current trends suggest wind and solar could supply at least 40% of the nation's electricity. Electricity by 2030. The power sector represents 38% of total energy consumption in the U.S. today. Transportation several emerging technologies will shift energy demand to the power sector. Energy transportation will see all liquid fuels, petroleum, replaced by electric fuels, electricity. Keep in mind transportation sector sponsors vehicles, heavy-duty trucks, ships, and airplanes, not all of which can be electrified soon. That's where renewable liquid fuels, such as renewable diesel, emerging electrofuels, could be making an impact. Transportation sector represents 28% of total energy consumption in the U.S. today. Industrial. Some industrial processes can be electrified too. steel making processes do electric and furnace technology to replace older blast furnace process it's more efficient to respect time energy use and cost similarly many industrial processes could theoretically lower the carbon footprint by using hydrogen yes hydrogen or biomass instead of dirty inputs. The industrial sector represents 23% of total energy consumption in the U.S. today. Heating. Large parts of the U.S. rely on natural gas or liquid fuels for heating. This could be decarbonizing by switching to electric heat, although dropping in the renewable gas or renewable liquids might be easier. Some utilities even exploring mixing hydrogen into the natural gas supply. That's unlikely to become meaningful. Decarbonization dual tool due to the steel pipelines. Okay, I'm skimming now because I only have a minute left. <sighs> Natural gas has become increasingly important in global energy supply, but it has yet to become the top source nearly 100 years after eclipsing a blah, blah, blah. Give me answers, not problems here. Uh, super long article. They didn't mention nuclear whatsoever. Did you notice? Um, did they mention it? They did not. Well, anyway, if you want to read more on this, the title of it is, on the street, The Single Most Misleading Stat in Renewable Energy by Max, M-A-X-X, C-H-A-T-S-K-O, if you want to learn more about that. Well, folks, it's been fun and I don't really get to talk too much about Native American news, so I'm glad I could dedicate a lot of this episode to that. Support the tribes. Go to powwow.com. Go to powwows. Support the tribes.